This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with stars. They sound quite mad, don't they? My guests are Darsha Narvaez and Wahinkpe Topa, also known as Four Arrows. Four Arrows is a maid relative and pipe carrier of the Oglala Lakota and the author of numerous books on native indigeneity and professor of educational leadership at Fielding Graduate University. Darsha Narvaez is professor emerita of psychology at the University of Notre Dame and an award-winning author of numerous books on indigenous wisdom and child development, as well as her work on the evolved nest. And together, they've created this fabulous new book that we're going to be talking about, Restoring the Kinship Worldview, Indigenous Voices Introduce 28 Precepts for Rebalancing Life on Planet Earth. I'm so honored to have the two of you, and I just loved this book so much, and I felt so at home in all of this. So to begin with, both of you were raised in the dominant Western culture. How did you reconnect with your Native roots? I'm half Puerto Rican, so I have, according to DNA analysis, have something like 10% Taino indigenous blood, but I didn't know that until recently. And I spent half my childhood in other Spanish-speaking countries and just had a sense of the world being kind of crazed (laughs) because of children my age on the street corners selling gum or uh, shining shoes, you know, in rags in these other countries and then coming back to the States with excessive materialism and all. And so I had this deep heart concern about the ethics of child raising. But it took me a few careers to get back to that. My PhD was my uh, seventh career. And I started out thinking about morality. It was all about moral development and thinking that it was as everyone was studying it as a matter of moral reasoning. But I realized after reading widely, no, it's actually neurobiological. And so I ended up integrating a whole bunch of different scholarship and understandings of the world in my book, Neurobiology and the Development of Human Morality, Evolution, Culture, and Wisdom. And when I wrote that book, I had a plan, I had a proposal the publisher agreed to, but the book had a mind of its own. And it wasn't enough to just look at the neurobiology of how we're shaped, our brains are shaped in early life, and how that affects our morality as adults. It's actually figuring out what the baselines for what's normal for our species. And that led me to indigenous wisdom. 
which I call in the book primal wisdom, and realized if we're going to be appropriate or ethical members of the earth community, we've got to return to what the indigenous peoples have known forever, that we are members of that community and partners with the rest of nature. And it's not human alone morality that's appropriate, and that will actually save us in the end, <laughs> because our species going down the drain unless we get back to indigenous wisdom. Yeah, beautifully said, Darsha. I um, ha also had a long evolved process of really coming to move in this direction of emphasis in my work and in my life. I grew up as a number of families in the Midwest with family stories of indigenous heritage that were never really confirmed. My mother had five sisters, and once in a while when they would get together, they would refer to a young lady who escaped from the Trail of Tears and was adopted by the Caldwell family in Joplin. And it was always done with a bittersweetness because their father committed suicide and it's somehow related to that. So I, I uh, really had uh, sort of a mixed understanding of indigeneity from that kind of a perspective until after the Marine Corps, I began a process of doing adventure sports and tried to ascend the Rio Urique River here in Mexico. I had a near-death experience and was rescued from the 8,000-foot canyon by well, Ramuria people who still live there. They're known better as Tarahumara, but this is a Cimarron group that live in the bottom of the canyon and still have their traditional ways intact. That prompted me to really want to understand indigenous ways because it was such an amazing experience. I quit everything I was doing, went back, got my doctorate in indigenous worldviews and curriculum at Boise State, and right out of the door was brought into the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota as the director of education. There I got in with the traditional groups of people who were sun dancers and, and was one of the seven sacred ceremonies was made a relative. So the process was intellectual and emotional from the personal vision and the experience with the Raramari. But then I lived with the Kunkak people of Mexico for a while I've, and I visited a number of tribes that still have, against all odds, managed to hold on to their traditional understandings of the world and in the great diversity of their cultures and their individual spiritual beliefs, I saw the in common factors that Darsha and I talk about in what we call the, the kinship worldview. How involved or how challenging was it to integrate those two different cultural worldviews? Well, for, for me, it was very easy because of the conflicts that I felt intuitively for most of my life. The lies of the Marine Corps, you know, the, the alcoholism of relatives, the, the, the sadness of a culture that was not obviously living to its positive potential. When, when I came upon people living in a very, very different way, non-materialistically, spiritually, with emphasizing relations in egalitarian reciprocity. I mean, I went, whoa, of course, this is how it should be. And, and this relationship with the natural world is sentient. So for me, it was not a conflict at all. It was not a tension. It was like finding home. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can totally relate to that part. Um, reading this book, everything in it just felt like 
it made total sense, felt like home, like the world that I want to live in. And to a large degree, am fortunate enough to actually live in up where I am. Yeah, it's been an interesting journey for me also, because I always felt kind of as a third culture kid, you know, having multiple cultural experiences, being raised bilingual by culture, you you have a broader view of the world, and I think makes it easier to actually realize, you know, we're kind of on the wrong pathway. And if we're going to restore life, really, in living cultures, we've got to shift. So I think because when you're moving between cultures, you have to do that anyway, to some degree. It wasn't so hard for me. I think it's really hard for a lot of Western people raised in the West without much cross-cultural experience to really take on the alternative view. I think because we have so many layers of fear and rigidity that we had to build into our egos to survive in a very untender, uncaring culture, at least in the United States, it's really hard to start to let go of all those layers of the onion (laughs) that you protected yourself with, right? And so we're hoping the book will help people start to do that and to pick up the things that grab your attention and then dive in. I think that there's a hypnotic factor in it as well, that some people are more prone to having been hypnotized by early childhood experiences, suggestions during trauma. Um, This idea of hypnosis is something that I've learned from in in the indigenous worldview in in terms of ceremony as being a form of of hypnosis, trance-based healing that I've witnessed. And I taught hypnosis at UC Berkeley and and actually learned it from wild horses. And so I guess my point is that another dimension that we don't talk enough about in our culture is one reason that people don't feel home with it so well, as we've all three have, is the strength of these identifiers and and these belief systems that are reified by the hegemony of the ruling elite and that we have somehow subscribed to where everything else is completely foreign. Yeah, I love that way of talking about it. Um, In our modern culture is the idea that we can solve all our problems through science and technology continuing down the path that we've been on for the past roughly 10,000 years. And that, you know, going back to pre-modern ways is out of the question. However, when we saw planet Earth from the perspective of space back in 1968, along with Carl Sagan's book, Pale Blue Dot, it initiated the beginning of a, of a radical new shift in our worldview. I would love for you both to talk about worldviews and how they guide and form our behavior in the world? It's interesting that you mentioned looking down on Earth, because one of the quotes I often quote is Edgar Mitchell, who was the seventh man to walk on the moon, and who, when he got back, quit NASA and founded the Institute of Noetic Sciences, one of the really great institutes of research, of innovative research. And when he looked down, you know, he, he just had this epiphany that we're all 
on this one planet together. And he has written that only a handful of visionaries understand that it's the indigenous worldview that offers a way to find out who we are and rebalance ourselves. So I don't think it's a coincidence that you mentioned that. The idea of worldview has been, you know, it's a European concept and it caught fire when it was you know, mentioned in the 1700s. Um, as an understanding of what is the relationship between nature and humans and supernature or the spiritual mystical world. And that this somehow has a fundamental platform for all the things that we do. And over time, you know, people, scholars have used it to refer to a culture, a philosophy, an ideology, a religion. In fact, if you Google worldview, 99% of what comes up will be different religions claiming to be a worldview. But the deep scholarship that goes back to this relationship between humans and nature and, and what we might call supernature, you find in the dialogues, you, you find when people start talking, they're either talking about, well, we have an anthropocentric you know, way of seeing the world or a non-anthropocentric, a materialistic or a spiritual. And you see that, that it does come into a binary. And, you know, most indigenous cultures do see positives and negatives in everything, that, that everything is everything is paired. In the dominant worldview, we look at that as a rigid binary. It's either this or that, or as in the indigenous worldview, these opposites are necessary and complementary. But the worldview arguments up until maybe very recently really stop dialogue because they are viewed with the binary worldview of the dominant worldview that that really is, is to say this is right and, and, and everything else is wrong. Whereas what Darsha and I are doing is we've created from the scholarship this binary of worldview precepts. We have 40 of them in the original list. We use them to encourage dialogue, saying we're all in the same boat. It is a continuum. It is context-oriented. And some of them have got us in deep, deep trouble, and we need to understand them. And so, you know, the concept of worldview itself has moved into this place where I think the founder of social anthropology, uh, Robert Redfield's idea that there's only two worldviews, is really coming to bear in the research of many, many, many people, including uh, David Graeber and, and David Wengrow, whose book, The New Dawn of Everything, has gathered together a lot of research confirming what Darsha and I are doing. Say more about that. Well, David Graeber, for example, he's talked about an economic and historical worldview that tries to reduce all human relationships to exchange, you know, and, and that everything from society to the cosmos can be imagined sort of as a business deal is how I think he said it. You know, they call it the indigenous critique that all the things that we have talked about in the European Enlightenment and in critical pedagogy and in counter-hegemonic work really originated from the intellectuals that were American Indians that began to inform and critique Europe in very eloquent ways. And they go on to, as anthropologists and archaeologists, they go on to confirm that the indigenous past is nothing like we've been taught and that it was much more complex and sophisticated and that egalitarian systems and nature-based systems that the egalitarian systems were based on were large. I mean, they, they like to talk about a, a great diversity of experimentation that occurred and 
They reject some of the simplistic things of saying that, you know, there was just a bunch of naked, small groups of hunter-gatherers running around. And that was the only reason that they were egalitarian. It's a 799-page book that really has confirmed things that I've been writing about for 40 years that are in the literature, criticizing people like Pinker and Diamond's work, you know, the kind of work that becomes popular and continues to rationalize the wars and the hierarchies and the authoritarianism that we have by rejecting the truth of the history of, as Darcy likes to say, 99% of human history. Mm -hmm. There is a fundamental difference between the dominant Western worldview and the indigenous kinship worldview. Um, The indigenous kinship worldview being one of all life and Mother Earth being sentient and alive with spirit sensed through the heart versus the Western abstract disembodied view through the intellect. And as I was reading the book and thinking about that, it struck me that those two worldviews are so profoundly different that they are virtually unimaginable from each other's perspective. Yeah, they kind of represent, in part, the left brain and the right brain on life, right? The left brain is the ego consciousness. Ian McGilchrist has written brilliantly about the differences between the two hemispheres and all the research that's been done to show how they view the world so differently. And the uh, left hemisphere in the Western world started to think it was in charge. And that is just the intellect, thinking that you can decide abstractly what's a good model for whatever your topic is and then apply it without any real world experience. And the right hemisphere is all about real world, immersed body knowledge, intuition, but it has to be well-educated intuition, not just any old intuition, which can be miseducated. And so Ian McGilchrist talks about how the left hemisphere has taken over the Western world and has led us to this point. So part of the difficulty then in trying to help people realize there's more to looking at the world than this dominant worldview, left hemisphere dominated perspective. It's hard because that ego consciousness, we've been forced into it. We force babies into it, children into it. We undermine their early life experience. So they get disconnected from building their personal intuitive knowledge, which is what we evolved to rely on. But they're, you know, traumatized, neglected, left alone, left to cry, all these things that harm brain development and social and emotional intelligence. And then we send them to school where we just talk about the reasoning stuff, factual knowledge. That's what you need for a good life. You know, it's crazy. Native elders complained to American leaders about sending their young to be educated in the American way back in the 1800s. And they complained that when they came back after a few years in the American school, they didn't know anything. (laughs) They didn't know how to live on the earth. They couldn't hunt. They couldn't fish. They couldn't stand the cold. They couldn't stand to fast, which was normal. So it's this Western perspective then to survive in that early undercare, trauma and neglect, that you have to build a big ego and you move into your left hemisphere. 
and your right hemisphere, which is usually spent in childhood collecting experience and knowledge from being immersed in the world and playing and imitating the actions of the adults around you and just this natural pedagogy, which is effortless, not so onerous like going to school to learn the ego stuff, the semantic and other kinds of knowledge. So when you, an adult who's been raised that way, you it's really hard to get back to that right hemisphere dominated or at least integrated mindset, which the indigenous perspective relies on. I, I love that Darsha brought up you know, the brain hemisphere work because my time at Pine Ridge, uh, I had some mentors there who were very profound philosophers. And they said that they felt that the Western culture was a representation of the left hemisphere of the brain. They said that they felt that that was the issue and that what we call chankuluta, the red road, which is that place in the center of the being in balance and a very difficult path it is. They said that, just to make it brief, that a balancing of the right and the left hemisphere occurs in the corpus callosum, which is in between, is in the center, and that that's how nature operates. So, you know, the brain hemispheres are also part of origin stories that relate to twin heroes. All over the world are twin hero mythologies and have been. And it's either twin men or twin women or, or a twin man and, and woman. And the indigenous ways, those are represented as the solar twin and a lunar twin and these relative oppositional ideas of the sun and the moon and how they always work in harmony. So in the stories, Monster Slayer, for example, who is a Navajo solar twin and child born of the water who is the Navajo lunar twin, you know, they meet the monster with the long arms and Monster Slayer says, no problem, I'm going to shoot him with my bow and arrow. You know, this is a left brain phenomenon. And Child Born of the Water says, no, I don't think we should. He's, he'll get that arrow before it gets to him and we're toast, right? And of course, the monsters are those things in us like greed and jealousy that uh, symbolically that these mythologies are about. So Child Born of the Water is asked by his brother, well, what should we do? And Child Born of the Water says, you know, essentially, let's go to the right brain. Let's sing to him. And that's what they do, right? But if you look at the mythologies and the twin hero stories of the dominant worldview, Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, Romulus and Ramus, Hercules and Ephicles, we see that this left hemisphere is predominant and even killing of the right hemisphere. So it's an amazing metaphor. I love that. It's such a right-brained approach to talking about that rather than uh, comparing the way our Western culture, you know, instills a sense of disconnection and distrust in oneself as a child and in, in the world around us and how it creates a desire or need to try to control the world around us or else to submit to a perspective of just wanting to be controlled by others around us. Right. Yeah, you're susceptible because you have nothing collected in your right hemisphere, very little. You're susceptible to just taking what other people tell you to be true, to be truth, because you have no lived experience to know personally whether this thing or that is true. And so you're susceptible to authoritarians who tell you, oh, I'll help you feel safe and secure. Just follow what I'm telling you, you know, and those people are the ones to be afraid of. And all that stuff we see going on now all over the world, in part because we are 
so stressed out, stressed to the gills. So when the stress response kicks in, it actually the blood flow shifts away from your cognitive, your higher order thinking, and you know mobilizes you from running, flight, fight, right? And that's what we're kind of putting people into the United States all the time. The stress response and it leads to inflammation, all sorts of health problems, but it's also socio-emotionally makes us stupid. <laughs> and then if you have nothing to go on, you have no, you know, deeper heart-based knowledge that, you know, you might be stressed as a, a person raised in a evolved nest appropriately and you get stressed, but you're able to control that. You're able to calm down. You're able to get back into your heart-centeredness. But if you have never had that experience or you have very little of it or not enough or you're out of your supportive nested community, it's easy to get caught up in that energy of blaming the other because you at least don't feel so depressed when you're all angry, right? Because you're going to be so depressed from having been undercared for, to be missing the nest, to be missing that loving attention, which is part of the natural world. The gift economy of nature is to support the well-being and the flourishing of all. There's an irony here in terms of staying with our right and left brain metaphor, and that is that a left brain culture that is not getting in tune with the intuition and the sensibilities that allow us to communicate and recognize the sentience of nature, etc., during times of fear, we go into right hemisphere activity in which that's where the hypnotic responses, the right hemisphere unconsciously generates responses to these authoritarian hypnotic suggestions, which are then represented and interpreted by the left hemisphere based on all of the hegemony. So I think there is a lot of dimensions to this, you know, foundational worldview that we're talking about. Yeah, so the early undercare, which is the lack of the evolved nest, I talk about then enhancing the survival systems that we're born with. We're born with mammalian emotion systems of fear, rage, seeking, which is exploration, panic. All these things are meant to keep us alive. But when you don't grow what's supposed to grow after birth from immersed social delightful experience, all the millions of abilities to get along with others, I'm guessing at millions, probably hundreds at least. And if you don't grow those, then you're forced to rely on your survival systems. And that's what we see then. You're easily triggered back into them when someone makes you afraid or you know challenges you. You're threat reactive everywhere you see threat. And then you'll be using those survival systems as your intuitions. <laughs> but it's improper, underdeveloped human nature. Yeah, and I would say inappropriate survival systems, because I think that the survival systems that have been developed for, you know, a million years in our tool-making relatives, I think that their survival mechanisms ultimately realized what we're talking about as important, to be able to react and fight or flight at the right moments, but also to be intuitive and listening and courageous and generous in other ways. So I'd like to bring in the idea of the survival mechanism in a broader, more positive way. Yeah, I'm talking about the ones we're born with, right? So you can shape them, you know, to use your fear for courage or your anger for righteous action. But you're born just to get back into your embodied survival and if you don't move beyond that, you're going to be a danger to yourself and others because you're only thinking about your own physical survival. You haven't developed all the other things that our communities would normally in indigenous worlds develop. 
I remember a study that was done for a book called Reclaiming Our Youth or something like that, but it was Martin Broken Lake. And it was an experiment that they took infants who were well-fed, diapered with their mother and tried to scare them into crying. They would pop balloons and jump out of something and try to scare children and do all sorts of things to try to get them to cry. And the child, if it felt secure and it was loved and nurtured and fed and warm and all this and in a safe environment, wouldn't cry no matter what they tried to do. Then they played a cassette tape of another child crying, and that created an empathetic response in the infants that caused them to cry. So I think that that's, again, getting back into this idea that we have these things when we come into the world, but we lose them. And that's why the criticisms of Maslow's work have come out, that this hierarchy of need that we've all bought into, that psychology has bought into, that we start out self-actualized and then we lose it in a culture that does not know how to nurture it. Right. So our work has emphasized how all those layers of Maslow's needs actually need to be provided to the baby. They have those needs from the beginning. It's not something, you know, you need shelter and food first and safety. And later on, you think about self-actualization. No, the baby's in it now, right? So this is the indigenous perspective. You need to have your basic needs met now in order to fulfill your human nature. In the Western culture, children are raised on the precept of original sin, that that they're fundamentally flawed and fundamentally bad. Whereas in the indigenous culture, what I get is that children are raised within this environment of the recognition of their innate goodness and to trust in themselves and in the world around them. Whereas in the Western culture, because of our flawed nature and our disconnection We live in fear of the world around us and everything, including the concept of God. Well, this is a good place to bring spirituality into it. And speaking of God and talking about this trusting that we have of children, because indigenous cultures, in spite of their great diversity of spiritual beliefs, have in common this idea that we are spirits that are inhabiting a body. And so they see the child as sacred. You know, it's, a, it's it's got the spiritual wisdom, the spiritual awareness, and that's what is nurtured. And if you interfere with the unfolding of that spirit, that child's spirit, you will do damage. So you don't coerce, you don't punish, you stand back and you support. So babies need a lot of support, and then you decrease that as the child becomes mobile. You let them wander around and trust their intuitions, just like any other animal. They don't go fall into holes, right? Children aren't going to go fall into a hole unless you've made them insecure in worrying about them and say, oh, don't do that. Oh, that's dangerous. Oh, if you do that, you're going to set them off on the trajectory of being fearful of not trusting their own intuitions and then causing accidents and such. So it's standing back, let the child unfold. If you punish the child, you're going to shift their trajectory. And we have long-term evidence now of how damaging spanking is. It's equivalent to physical abuse. Long-term negative effects on a child's ability to get along with others. They'll be more aggressive and such and more distrustful. So the indigenous perspective, which didn't have all these scientific experiments or analyses, right, to go on, but they had observation. They used over generations of observation, but also their instincts. You know, nature's instincts are to enhance well-being. 
And they follow those instincts, just like all our other evolved nests of all our animal kin. They're enhancing the well-being of their young. And that's what our indigenous cousins do as well. And of course, to make these changes, you know, Darsha, because of her specialty, she emphasizes the child rearing, which is so crucial, obviously. It's the beginning place, and it's where if we could get that. But, you know, our book is also for people that need to become the parents for that kind of behavior. And so we look at this as bottom-up and top-down work. And the top-down work is, well, here we are. How do we become those kinds of parents? How do we, as adults, begin to transform and change? And I think that's an important thing for us to look at it in terms of how we can use the worldview precepts and say, okay, let's look at the dominant worldview precepts. How many of them am I actually practicing or supporting? And how is that causing problems in my life personally, in my relationships? How is that causing problems in institutions that have got us in this tragic plight? And what are the indigenous worldview precepts? And what can I do to to find that balance and move back into that at the right time in the right context? How do I begin to look at these interrelated ideas of recognizing sentience and trees? You know, we should probably let the listeners hear some of those ideas that are worldview precepts so that all this stuff makes sense to them. Yeah, I was just reflecting on how Western culture has conditioned itself to expect the worst. And then out of that comes overprotection of children, creating laws and punishments and things. And one of the precepts that I love is the precept of non-interference. And it's also the one that I find most challenging for myself. You know, my ancestors were notorious for always meddling in the lives of others with good intention, but, you know, it's hard to practice true non-interference. And it's hard now because so many people don't have personal, well-educated intuitions, (laughs) right? They've been raised to be self-centered or aggressive or mindless. And so it's hard not to interfere when someone's doing harm. So it is a challenge these days. But yeah, if you're a parent, it's really important to stand back and try to avoid the Western anxious kind of meddling parenting. But the whole authoritarian process is to keep you from allowing people to learn on their own and to observe and learn and trust their instincts and trust the universe. That's foreign to the dominant worldview. That's foreign to Western culture. In fact, you know, Graeber and Wingo talk about that there was no conversation about egalitarian freedom because it didn't exist. Everything was kings and queens and serfdom and hierarchy. And it wasn't conceived of because it was assumed that that's how the world works until you know 1492 and the beginning of what they call the indigenous critique of Europe. And so this authoritarianism is what keeps us, you know, from that particular worldview. But but all of the worldview manifestations are so interrelated. So if we look at rigid hierarchy versus non-hierarchy, and again as a continuum, the Lakota were non-hierarchical, matriarchal. But during buffalo hunts, the individuals were assigned leadership positions and hierarchy existed for the hunt. Now, different people were assigned at different times, but then after the hunt, they went back to non-hierarchy. Can I just say, Graeber and Wengro talk about this idea of progress that the Western world has that, well, hierarchy is just part of progress, right? And there's nothing we can do about it. And, you know, there's collateral damage. So they're pointing out that 
it is possible to be flexible, that you don't have to just be on the so-called progressive linear way into the future, that we can go back and forth. Egalitarianism when necessary or most of the time, and then hierarchy when that's necessary. So they're opening up possibility for us. We Westerners don't have to stay in this rigid kind of factory line of moving to the future where everything's falling apart and being destroyed. We have options. Beautifully said. Yeah, and the matrilineal structure of the indigenous and how they pass authority back and forth during different times, like times of peace and times of war. Right. Yeah, so just a list of some of the things on the indigenous worldview manifestation. I'll, I'll read some and, and people can think, well, what is the opposite of that? And as you listen, as your listeners are hearing these, it's common for some people to say, well, well, no, I, I believe in that or, or that's in my religion or that's in my family or whatever. But I ask for people to think about, well, what about the systems that you support and that are driving everything, economics, education, entertainment? How are they representing or not representing the indigenous worldview manifestations of non-hierarchy, of fearless trust in the universe, of a socially purposeful life, of an emphasis on community welfare as opposed to focus on personal gain, uh, respect for various gender roles and fluidity, non-materialistic, earth and all systems as living and loving instead of being an unloving it, inseparability of head and heart, competition to develop positive potential as opposed to what it is in our dominant culture, empathy, animistic and biocentric, the sacredness of words and truthfulness. And that's just 12 of them. So you get a sense of that. Yeah, generosity is the highest expression of courage. Ceremony is life-sustaining. The laws of nature primary. Nature as benevolent. High respect for women, etc. So that'll give the audience some sense of these precepts that are represented by the essential nature-based kinship worldview and are not honored or practiced. They're honored in many places, but generally they don't guide our systems. And one of the precepts is the kinship approach to competition in games and how it's focused more on teamwork, not only with teammates, but also with opponents and not about winning and very much about this egalitarian approach that you had mentioned earlier. And then how that can model how we can better engage in more serious things like politics and economics. And the way games and competition can be played with in such creative and wonderful ways. Well, I think four arrows can speak to this for personal experience. Well, the idea of competition, when I first was with the Raramari, you know, I was a competitive athlete and I was all about winning and being better and superior. And this is the Marine Corps thing. And I watched this amazing competition called the Aurahipa Run. And the communities start the race by different families making the ball that's kicked and they have to go out and carve a wooden oak ball out of a limb that's on the ground. And then they kick it for hundreds of kilometers up and down an 8,000 foot canyon that, you know, the ball will go down hills. They got to go down and kick it back up. And it lasts for 15 to 24 hours. And people come from all over to bet on what team will come in first. And so I'm watching it with this Western competition mindset. And when the winning team finishes this Olympian event and comes across, 
they're virtually ignored except by their wives who come over and give them something to drink and a shaman who comes over and massages them. But other than that, you know, everybody kind of just collects their bets, has fun, and, and they're sort of forgotten about. So I kind of out of my ignorance about what we're talking about, I asked my interpreter to ask Augustine Ramos, the 102-year-old shaman that I lived with, and I said, why aren't the winners being celebrated like we do in the United States, you know, then cheering them? And Augustine spoke for at least five minutes, but the interpretation was very short. Well, somebody had to come across first. <laughs> and, and so, I love that so much. Yeah. yeah. And so in so many of the, the, the indigenous sports, you know, where they go out and two teams pick up different sized logs and they race over 40 miles of tough country. But when the people with the heavier log fall behind, teammates on the first log go back and help them. This happened at Carlisle School, where Jim Thorpe, the famous athlete, was. The football teams always wound up even with West Point and other you know, universities where they played football. And the coach was being driven crazy. Why is it always we tie? You guys could have kicked their butt. And the Indians would back off just a little bit to keep the game interesting and to keep it going, right? And so the idea of competition is big in indigenous cultures, and it's about human potential. It's not about being better than. It's about developing your survival skills, your human potential in, in a joyful way. And they play hard. They play hard. But it's very, very difficult for people in the dominant culture to understand that. And as a result, we lose opportunities. There's never been a gold medal record happen when you're not in competition with someone else. Like the four-minute mile, you know, you couldn't have been broken by Bannister without having somebody to run against, right? So we have somebody to push us. And that's an honor. And your opponent is your, in essence, your life teammate. I totally love that. And Darsha, you share a story about the Mbuti tug of war game between men and women that I found absolutely wonderful. And in our culture, there's this battle of the sexes. And yet this was done in this beautiful spirit of cooperation. Do you want me to I read? Sure. All right. So. Colin Turnbull, anthropologist, describes one such ceremony among the Mbuti, a, a tug of war between the sexes. He says, when the men and boys start to win, one of them will abandon his side and join the women, pulling up his bark cloth and adjusting it in the fashion of women, shouting encouragement to them in a falsetto, ridiculing womanhood by the very exaggeration of his mime. Then, when the women and girls start to win, one of them adjusts her bark clothing, letting it down, and strides over to the men's side and joins their shouting in a deep bass voice, similarly gently mocking manhood. Each person crossing over tries to outdo the ridicule of the last, causing more and more laughter, until when the contestants are laughing so hard they cannot sing or pull anymore, they let go of the vine rope and fall to the ground in near hysteria. Although both youth and adults cross sides, it is primarily the youth who really enact the ridicule. The ridicule is performed without hostility, rather with a sense of at least partial identification and empathy. It is in this way that the violence and aggressivity of either sex, quote unquote, winning is avoided and the stupidity of competitiveness is demonstrated. And that's just a classic example of a combination of several of our precepts in, in the indigenous world. Just a, just a classic example. You have play and empathy, right? Competition, but in a fun way. Yeah. 
Generosity. And, <laughs> yeah, and even complementary mm. duality. Yeah. Conflict resolution. Oh, yeah. That's another wonderful precept that I love so much was the uh, indigenous approach or kinship approach to conflict resolution and notions of justice. There's a story that Ella Deloria tells about that, that that your listeners might enjoy, although they might be shocked at first, as many are. But it was in the 1800s and it was a group of Lakota people on a reservation. Two teenagers got into a fight and one killed the other one. And the indigenous people were having to make a decision on how to deal with that, how to resolve that conflict. And because the basic idea of justice for indigenous conflict is to bring people back into community, that that was the foundation of what we now call restorative justice. In this case, the young man that killed the other, you know, didn't know what would happen. And the worst consequence would be alienation from the group. And anyway, to make a long story short, after four days of powwowing and talking and discussing, the boy was brought into the center of the circle and was honored with gifts. And what I went through, a relative-making ceremony. And the family of the murdered boy adopting the boy who was responsible as their own son. And that required this kind of ceremony of, of honoring and, and gifts. And as it turns out, of course, that boy became an amazing individual, a great leader. And you think about what would have happened if, you know, the kind of justice that we dish out, revenge, punishment, jail, prison, would have happened that, you know, that, that such an individual wouldn't have emerged. So in Native American First Nation perspectives, when someone does something wrong, like steals something, even minor compared to murder, that's a sign of disconnection. And so the community comes together and the people who have been affected talk about how they're affected. Well, I feel less trust now to walk down the street because so-and-so stole whatever it was. And the offender is in the circle listening. And over hours, days perhaps, there's this shared space of trying to reconnect, try to get back that sense of responsibility in the offender, build back their empathy for the community, and then establish what would be a fair recompense as part of getting him knitted back into the community rather than punished and pushed away, right? Which is what our Western culture tends to do. Yeah, Larry Brentrow and Martin Brokenleg refer to that as expanding the circle of blame. And I just love the way all parties are brought into the community of creating the opportunity for a solution that works for everybody. Right. So another precept is the one of words being sacred and how in indigenous cultures, the concept of lies doesn't even exist. And then there's that famous old line that the white man speaks with forked tongue and how that initially was such a foreign concept to even be able to do something like that. Thomas Cooper writes a scholarly book called A Time Before Deception that I, I really recommend. And in it, he shows some of the stories of indigenous cultures when they first had contact with treaties and the treaties were broken, how they did healing ceremonies for the breakers of the treaties, for the white people who did the treaty breaking. Because at that point, they felt that they had a mental disorder that disallowed them from seeing reality. So this idea, it took a while for them to realize that these were what were called intentional lies, right? Because they just could not conceive that people would use words 
intentionally deceptively. So they thought it must be a mental illness. And so, you know, we are we're definitely in a world now that does not abide by that kind of idea. And if you combine that with this idea of trance-based learning and ceremony, we can see again the power of words. If people are hyper-suggestible and we have an authoritarian, deceptive individual that's not seeking the greater good, then those words can create harm. E. Richard Sorensen, an anthropologist, lived with different native peoples around the world. He called them pre-conquest cultures. And he just was amazed. Well, he collected films and realized later that he could not perceive what he was experiencing when he was there. When he watched the films, he saw how different it was to be a member of those communities from what he was raised with. And what he noted was that every child's statements were taken as truth. Everyone was about being authentic to one another, even the adolescents, everybody. And he tried to ask and to probe, well, how can you believe them? Or don't you know about lying? And they couldn't understand what he was talking about. (laughs) So it's a different way of being that we have lost, but we can return to. So there was like no fear of punishment. Therefore, it was safe to just be authentically as we are and to be able to make mistakes and for it not to be a catastrophic thing in the way that it can be in our culture. Right. This culture. Yeah. And I think fear of punishment is that fear of the relationship failing you. There's no fear of that. We fail babies all the time. And so they build fear. It just becomes an overwhelming dread, right? Oh, no, this person's going to abandon me in this moment, right? Because they've been abandoned and in despair, in the abyss, in hell, when you leave a baby to cry, alone in a room, my goodness, sleep, so-called sleep training to extinction. So there's no experience like that in these pre-conquest cultures. You're always with someone. You're always enhancing one another. The babies learn how to elicit the fun reactions and to enhance other people's well-being, even in babyhood. And the same thing with adults. An adult executive in a corporation is afraid to speak the truth about something that could be important for the company because he might be afraid of being ridiculed by his peers or being fired. So, you know, it's across the age spectrum. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I would love for you to talk about the function of ceremony and how it can bring us back and reconnect us to, you know, the living reality of what is. Well, if we look at learning as being a product of brain hemispheric balance, as we've talked earlier, ceremony puts people into that state and the intuitive part of ourselves comes into a strong place. Our unconscious access is possible. And this is done with music, with drumming, with the atmosphere and the expectations, with the heat, whatever it is that causes that to happen. And indigenous cultures have used ceremony for so many different reasons, from giving thanks for the day at the beginning of each morning to having ceremonies for particular reasons. We can return to that. We can't you know, misappropriate particular ceremonies, but we can create our own ceremonies if we are not affiliated with the group that does them. And by going into an altered lower brainwave frequency, by having a particular intention for one of the positive things on our worldview list, 
and can be enjoined with other people to make it something that happens on certain days or a certain time. And these things begin to put us in touch with our spirit selves. And we begin to recognize how beautiful each of us are, no matter who we are or what we're doing or what our particular place in the world is. We begin to recognize our social purpose. Getting into a ceremonial mindset with positive intentions and language. You know, the opposite can happen and is used intentionally in the military and in certain religious places where this kind of ceremonial mindset is put forward, but then what is planted, you know, this happens in cults. So, you know, it's a phenomenon that if we have the healthy worldview perspective and we go into it, we can use it constructively and we can be in control of it as opposed to giving the control to someone else. And I would just add that an individual can also practice ceremony just in being mindful and being aware that everything around you is alive and to be grateful for the gifts that all the animals and plants and the air and the sun provide us and to then behave in a way that's respectful toward all things. And, you know, think of the Japanese tea ceremony and how very deliberate it is about having a beautiful and respectful way of treating the tea and one another in that ceremony. We can do that in our everyday lives, too. So if you can't find that group that you can get together with to do these things, you can do them on your own as well. It's better in a group. Mm -hmm. Four Arrows, could you tell us about how you use ceremony to heal your own lymphoma condition? Well, sure. Before this, I did my NEP ceremony this morning and you know, I, I was diagnosed with lymphoma in 2008, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and they insisted on surgery of the nine-centimeter tumor that was in my abdomen and a four-centimeter tumor under my arm, and they said that chemo was necessary, and that with it, with the new chemicals that they have, I could expect to live for another 10 years. I went into the lodge and did ceremony first to find out what I should do and, you know, to get out of my critical thinking out of my hypnosis because we're all hypnotized to some degree to this dominant culture and the power of the medical authority was getting me and my wife moving in that direction. So I went in and, and I did ceremony and I got in touch with my deeper spiritual self. I communicated with the energies that and vibrations that I refer to as spirits that came into the lodge. And I came out with a big smile on my face. And I told my wife, I said, no, nah, I, I could do life a lot better than I'm doing it. And I'm looking at this as a gift. And so that's what I did. And, and I don't know, you know, I mean, the combination of proper movement exercise twice a day, uh, vitamin D from the sun, you know, stress management, healthy, spirit-filled food, uh, good relationship, you know, self-hypnosis and ceremony are sort of the ingredients that have kept me alive and healthy. I mean, I surf. I'm looking forward to going surfing right after this call and I play handball. And so, you know, I'm just saying that ceremony for one's own, you know, to answer your question, own health is, I think, a vital part of it. Of course, then you do the research and see, you know, what kinds of things are best, what, you know, what medicines there are available, etc. And you talk about your experience using what you call inductive trance. And talk about what that has to do with a relational worldview. 
Well, if we understand that we've been given, all creatures, in fact, I, I mentioned I had learned this from wild horses. If you go on YouTube, just put in wild horse hypnotist, and you'll see an example of me doing this with a wild horse. But all creatures have been given this facility to be able to communicate telepathically, to be able to tune into what Jung referred to as this collective unconscious, to be able to maximize our potential with both sides of the brain, going back to that metaphor, right? And so that's what we're doing with this phenomenon that has been so abused and misunderstood, but yet they still do open heart surgeries with. That's the word hypnosis. I have a book that Prentice Hall published a long time ago that was actually banned after endorsements from the California Medical Association and Norman Cousins. Somebody said, oh, this should be used only by licensed physicians, and I had written it for everybody. Well, it's, it's being republished by Routledge next year, and uh, I insisted that we put hypnosis in the cover instead of the original one was just called patient communication. But if, if somebody comes upon the scene of an accident and there's somebody who is bleeding in a car, hemorrhaging, and the car door can't be opened, you could walk up to that person and always this should be used as an adjunct to standard medical care if possible. But if you can't open the door, you can't put direct pressure on. But you can say, listen, my name is Dr. Norvias, and I'm trained in these things. The worst is over. I've called the ambulance. It's on its way. But you're hemorrhaging. I want you to go ahead and stop your bleeding when I count to three. One, two, three. The bleeding will stop in about 90% of the situations within the first hour of trauma because people automatically go into this hypersuggestibility to the communication of a perceived trusted authority figure. Indigenous people understood that by watching the animals. And by doing that, they realized that they could take control of it so they weren't hypnotized by others. So there's an interesting dynamic between projecting authority or embodying authority and how that is, as you suggested, it can be done in a positive and negative ways. And being the self-authority. Say, I have the authority to be able to do this with the help of all the facilities that are surrounding me and in me. And I'm going to go into that state and imagine it. I mean, I'm, Einstein said imagination is more powerful than knowledge. And all the phenomenon of hypnosis is, is believing deeply in an image, a carefully constructed image that is positive while in a lower brainwave frequency. And it doesn't have to be, you don't have to be in a deep state. I've had my appendix taken out with just being in an alpha state. So this is just one of the things that we see in traditional indigenous cultures who were able to optimize their individual potentials via ceremony, via going out into the world and using all their resources of the right and left hemisphere. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating area to explore directly and to find ways to, to practice in ways that are meaningful to us. And there's different terminology that can be confusing for different people about it. Oh, but yeah. It 70 different words, you know, inner mind training, all this stuff. And also it's put down all the Abrahamic religions put hypnosis down as of the devil. There's places about making spells in the Bible that have turned people off. It, there's been a, a lot of Hollywood misdirection and confusion. But ultimately, all hypnosis is self-hypnosis, and hiring somebody can be helpful, but ultimately, you can get a piece of dental floss on a paperclip and imagine it going in a circle with your elbow resting on the table and your finger and thumb holding that paperclip about a quarter inch above the table. You can imagine it going in a circle, and if you really deeply begin to believe in it and you're not thinking about, oh, this is silly or being skeptical, it'll start going in a circle. 
And that's because ideomotor neurons are firing as a result of the imagery that is beginning in the brain that would be a kind of a first step in actually using the muscles in the finger. But when that's going in a circle, that is an indication that you have gone into a trance modality. So then just have something predetermined, you know, imagine when I speak to the boss, I'm going to have so much confidence and love in my heart. And imagine that and you have that pre-written down so you don't have to think about it. Because if you start thinking, the pendulum will stop moving and you're back into just thinking and imagining it, but not in a hypnotic state or lower brainwave frequency. But if you have that pre-done and you get practicing on this, you start imagining the situation that you're going to do with your boss. And the pendulum will actually go in a larger, more powerful circle. And that means you're really doing what you would do if you went and paid somebody, you know, $300 an hour to hypnotize you. And so ultimately, you don't really need to even do that. You just know, you just know how to go into this place. And yet it's been suppressed. Why? Because, well, salesmen use it. You know, there's different linguistic strategies like you want to use my pen or yours to sign the contract. Well, you can use that to heal people. Would you be more comfortable with your arm here or here? But it's just because the authoritarian people that know about hypnosis use it, like Goebbels did in Nazi Germany, right? And during fear, that's when people are hypersuggestible to this kind of thing in a culture that doesn't understand the self-control of this through intuitive lateral brain work and ceremony. And advertising is based on that whole thing. Yeah. That and spirituality are two topics that we talk so little about in higher education, right? And they may be the two most important things we can talk about is worldview and how it relates to spirituality and trance-based learning. So at one point in the book, Four Hours, you pitched Darsha that it's easy to judge and criticize Western dominant ways, but we have to find a way of resolving the conflict between these two worldviews and their approach to the world and all of life. And then you ask, how do we do that with people who may not think that they have anything to gain from that and basically disagree with the very premise of the need to do that? Well, I mean, that's what education is about. I, I recently gave a presentation to clinical psychology faculty in my university. I was asked to talk about how to decolonize the syllabi. And of course, decolonization, the decolonization movement is about indigenization, but many people are forgetting that. And indigenization ultimately is about returning to the worldview that existed before colonization. So even our colonizing movements in education are sort of having to catch up with what we're really talking about. And at the meeting, the right away, there was opposition and a lot of defensiveness. And it's just a matter of being respectful to that and not arguing in ways that are trying to put down someone and, and trying to find out what is it and what they're saying that's actually valid. And then how do you take that and move it in a way to look at other options? And, you know, there was one woman at the very beginning who said, I don't agree with this chart. It's a rigid binary and it's not a fair thing. And I think we are on the right side more than we're on the left side. And I said, can you give me an example? I think you're right that this is a continuum and there's nothing on the right side that you won't find somewhere in a good book or in a religious precept. But what about in terms of how we live our lives and everything? But the rest of the faculty came and kind of started pointing out examples to her. 
And about an hour into the half-day workshop, she said, you know, I get it now. It's like, it's not that these precepts that we don't know about, you know, higher respect for women or the problems of materialisticness, but we don't practice them in our institutions. And, you know, part of me, you know, part of me wanted to go, yeah, no, that's what, of course, but of course I didn't, you know, because that's, that's what we have to get to. We have to work through that. And people that look at the worldview chart and, and the preface to it that says we should look at this as we're all in the same sinking boat. And here's a continuum of worldviews that have been studied that are foundational to our thinking. Try to start practicing with that. And my vision that I had at, uh, on the near-death experience on the Rio Reek, I call the cat-fawn connection because it was about a mountain lion that led us out of a cave and it was about a fawn that one of the Indians had run down for food for his family. And it was called cat-fawn. And cat is what we're talking about here. It's the concentration-activated transformation. It's the hypnosis factor. Fawn are four of the worldview precepts that are pretty foundational, that relate to fear, that relate to authority, that relate to words, and that relate to nature, F-A-W-N. And so by people simply saying, okay, what problems do I have in life? What am I facing that's not satisfying, that's not bringing me to my full positive social, physical, mental, spiritual potential? And they go, well, okay, well, let me look at this cat fawn thing. What is it that I believe about fear? What are my fears and what's the source of them? How does it relate to me having been hypnotized by my dad or an early childhood experience by cat? Same thing with on whose authority am I believing this? And where did that come from? And then what words am I using? And are they accurate? And where did that come from? And how have I used nature as a teacher? And then once you go through that cognitive process and you realize that if I use the indigenous approach to fear, which is to see it as an opportunity to practice a virtue, not as something to escape, you know, humility, courage, patience, fortitude, and on whose authority? Well, in the indigenous worldview, the highest authority is one's own personal reflection on lived experience under the umbrella of recognizing everything is interconnected. It's not what somebody told you. And then you got words. We've talked about that. You know, is this word accurate? If I say I need to go to a meeting, is that really accurate? Or can I say I want to go to the meeting? And that will change the psychology of your reactions and the stress. And then how have I learned this from nature? Well, what nature do I have around me where I can observe? I just recently had my grandson here, my eight-year-old grandson. And, you know, he hit his sister, his little sister. And so there happened to be a hermit crab, a big one, maybe two inches in diameter, walking by here where I am near the beach. And I said, I'd like you to come here. I want you to take this beach chair, sit down and watch that hermit crab. And if he moves, follow him. I want you to watch him and come and tell me three things that you've learned that would rectify what it is that you did in hitting your sister. And it worked. I mean, it worked powerfully. So that's what the in is, right? And once that process is done, then you go in, use self-hypnosis, because with willful determination, we're not going to be able to move into these new worldviews. We're going to have to imagine it. So it sounds like this notion of trance and hypnosis that you're talking about is really about bringing us back into direct connection, relational connection with the world. Beautifully said. And there were a couple of lines that I extracted from the book that I thought were so beautifully said. Being a fully human being in a relation world is like living life, like a continuous birthing. One is continually present as witness to the moment, like the crest of a wave at which the world is about to disclose itself for what it is. And then you expressed it another way, 
as the simple movement of breath in the heart in relation to the world. That's right. The indigenous perspective or worldview is really a kinship. It's restoring our connection to our selves, our spirit, our hearts, our relational connection to humans and then other than humans or more than humans. Well, the way I picture it is I'm a, like a spider on a web and everything I do is reverberating on that web to everything else. And so to be aware that I'm always connected, I'm never alone. And I'm always really having an impact on the world. So there's a sense of responsibility in that connection. You know, it's so important for folks to see that this is relevant to what's happening in our world today, whether it be the pandemic, the risk of nuclear war, climate change, the violence, the wars. I came upon an article today called Hope for Nature, a New Deal for the Commons by Joseph Cedarwall. It said the all-encompassing reach of this infectious dominion worldview has led to a disconnected, degraded planetary ecosystem, divided and unequal and traumatized societies almost everywhere. It renders our global and national political institutions incapable of leading us out of these interconnected environmental and social crises. So people are starting to refer to worldview, but not really getting this phenomenon of indigenous and dominant worldview and the complementarity and the possibilities for a solution to what we're facing. I think we should also say that the indigenous worldview is not the same thing as indigenous traditional knowledge. And to adopt and to learn and to practice the indigenous worldview will make you more likely to also support indigenous traditional knowledge, which we don't have. Four Arrows and I don't have that because we were not raised in a particular indigenous group with the observational learning that goes on, the language learning of that indigenous group's tongue. And so well, our book is not talking about that kind of indigenous knowledge. But we all need to support that knowledge because it's the indigenous people of the world that are preserving the most biodiversity around the world, according to a UN report. And we need to honor their wisdom and support them however we can, while also adopting this indigenous worldview, which will help us do that and help us live more respectful, responsible lives. Thank you for sharing that, Darsha. And that will help people who sometimes say, well, I really can't get into that because I'm not indigenous or I don't want to misappropriate. And that will help them understand that the worldview is about the world and we're all indigenous to planet Earth. And the final precept in this book relates the story of Ilarion Merkuliev and his expanded awareness that he experienced. And I would love for you to tell that story and then what emerged from that for him, because he's an example of one of the last Native peoples who was actually brought up as a child in his Native culture. This is the quote we have from him. The book has 28 quotes, right? And then we talk about each quote. Here's his quote from chapter 28, an emphasis on heart wisdom. Since the age of six, I've known how to get out of my head. As one of the last Yunangan Alut, to experience a true traditional upbringing, I was allowed to walk the six miles from the village out to the bird cliffs, even as a very young child. In my six-year-old mind, I decided that the only difference between those birds and myself was that they drew upon a vast field of awareness rather than an intellectual thought process, although I did not use such words at the time. 
I wanted to be like a bird. So after months of effort, I developed the capacity to maintain this state of awareness without thinking for several hours at a time. That was when the magic happened. I could sense many things I'd never experienced before, and my world expanded enormously. From then on, I understood how Yunangan people received their spiritual instructions for living, principles that had helped them sustain their communities for thousands of years, reciprocity with all living things, humility, respect for all life, honoring elder wisdom, giving without expectation of a return to self, thinking of others first, and many more. Such spiritual principles for living did not come from logic or thought, but from a much deeper source of wisdom, which our Yunangan culture referred to as the heart. When Yunangan elders speak of the heart, they do not mean mere feelings, even positive and compassionate ones. Heart refers to a deeper portal of profound interconnectedness and awareness that exists between humans and all living things. Centering oneself there results in humble, wise, connected ways of being and acting in the world. Indigenous peoples have cultivated access to this source as part of a deep experience and awareness of the profound interdependency between the natural and human worlds. To access it, you must drop out of the relentless thinking that typically occupies the Western mind. When access to this portal provides the inner wisdom that keeps us in right relationship with all of life, thus ensuring our long-term survival and well-being individually and collectively. Our fallible thought processes regularly deceive us, yet when guidance or information comes from the heart, it can be relied upon and has impeccable integrity. And the most dire reversal is that now the mind tells the heart what to do instead of the mind following the heart. Still, when you access this heart center, you must have great courage to follow what it is telling you. Sometimes that feels like jumping from a cliff, but when you do, you will never regret it. Once you have accessed the heart, you enter into the vast field of awareness in the company of birds and connect in a deep and profound way with all living things. That is so beautiful. I don't think we can improve upon it. <laughs> I don't think so either. But after that, you talk about how you work with people who were not raised with heart wisdom. So I would love for you to talk about how you work with people to help them develop that later in life. So when I've worked with students, I try to help them realize that there is another orientation other than the focused categorizing mindset that they bring to school learning, right? That's what we're taught to do is to focus in on this information and figure out how it relates to that information and put them in categories. Well, that's left brain stuff, right? And so I worked with my students to practice this open awareness orientation, the more right hemisphere, where you come to a situation and you see what's beautiful here. How can I enhance it? How am I related? And how are we connected? And these two orientations, Ian McGilchrist talks about the research showing that in each situation you have a choice of which one you take up. And it's a winner-take-all event. So if you start out with that left brain orientation, it's really hard to shift over to the right hemisphere's orientation. And you can see this in brainstorming. In brainstorming sessions, you need to just let the ideas flow and flow. If someone starts to edit the ideas, that's the left brain, right? Then everything shuts down. 
So you have to maintain that open awareness of flow. And this is what you see in the pre-conquest cultures. They spend most 99% of their time in this open flowing way of being. And so I was trying to do that with the students to orient them that way. And one of the things we did in class, I used to be a music teacher, we would play folk song games like a hunting we will go, a hunting we will go, we'll catch a little fox and put him in a box and then we'll let him go. And you have the circle that gets bigger and bigger and people are running around trying to avoid getting in the circle and people are hanging on to holding hands so they're touching, they're singing, they're looking at each other, they're laughing. All this is great for the vagus nerve, which is the 10th cranial nerve, one of the most important nerves in your body, innervates all the major systems, critical for mental health and physical health and social health. And this is all being stimulated at that time. And also your right hemisphere is growing. When you have something face-to-face -face where you're socially immersed and you have to be in the moment, you can't stand back and think and observe, you're in it, the right hemisphere is growing. And you can do that all through your life to get back into playing in the moment. I always encourage people, find a young child, go play with a you know zero to six-year-old and, and follow their lead and just be spontaneous. And that right hemisphere will grow. You'll be more empathic. You'll be more flexible. You'll be more attuned. And I especially love just watching children. Very inspirational. <laughs> yeah. There's a line that I love about hope not being the certainty of an outcome but rather the certainty of doing what's right, regardless of the outcome and how that relates to where we are in the world right now. I think that that idea of redefining hope, you know, Vaclav Havel, I think originally had a quote that was very similar to the wording of it, but I recognized it in Sitting Bull's words, a monograph that I wrote about that. Sitting Bull lived at a time when all the buffalo had been killed smallpox had wiped out everybody. He was being chased. And yet he never stopped living to the fullest. He never stopped doing ceremony, being generous, playing with the children, writing songs, resisting. And I see a lot of activists, friends of mine, who are burning out because as much as they have hope that there's going to be an outcome, they look around and they see quite the opposite of the evidence. And I think that this idea that hope can be redefined to say, you know, it's not about that we can turn things around. In fact, it's probable that we won't. It's possible always, but it's probable that we won't, at least not in our lifetimes. And yet, it's so important to continue on because this is the right thing to do to become a human being, to be a human being. We're spirits inhabiting a body, and this is why we're here, is to learn how to be a true human being and one of the species on this beautiful planet. And so I think that it's a dangerous illusion sometimes to be dependent upon something that doesn't look like from all cognitive and intuitive perspectives that is going to change. Also, there's going to be people that are going to have to be rebuilding. And I would rather them listening to your radio show, uh, this presentation, and be the uh, people that are inspired by that than what you see in the typical post-apocalyptic films where you've got, you know, the white guy with machine gun bullets on him, you know, holding a woman by the hair. So... It's a different orientation. Uh, not everybody agrees with it. When I first offered it, people kind of got upset. And I'm not saying don't have it. 
it's just a kind of a way of thinking about it. And if you really think that a miracle is going to happen and you want to keep praying and hoping for that, and that works for you, then by golly, continue because anything is possible. But it's just another orientation that I find is reducing the amount of burnout and people that are writing me back and saying that now they're working even harder without the stress. Mm -hmm. Darsha, any final words? I encourage everyone to read the book and to follow your heart, grow the heart, grow your connections. You can find nature connection wherever you are, pay attention and be grateful to the sunshine, to the clouds, to the grass, the dandelion in the sidewalk, wherever you are. Hopefully you have more than that around you, trees and plants and animals, and be there to listen and to learn from them. Mm. Well, it's been so wonderful to have the two of you on the show. Thank you very much. We uh, sure appreciate the conversation with you. Yes, thanks so much. Darsha Narvaez and Wahingpe Topa, also known as Four Arrows, have created this fabulous new book, Restoring the Kinship Worldview. Indigenous Voices introduce 28 precepts for rebalancing life on planet Earth. Got the big drum in the distance. 
the blackbirds in the sky That's the sound that you hear When the buffalo cry But you don't stand a chance Against my prayers You don't stand a chance Against my love, the outlaw the ghost dance. The outlaw the ghost We shall live again. We shall live again. We shall live again. was a mystic he knew the secret of the train and sitting for the great apostle of the ghost stand come on Comanche come on Blackfoot come on Shoshone Come on, child. We shall live again. We shall again. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com slash WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. Mm-hmm.